Hello, and welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today, I'm joined by Joe Fabasevich. Hey, Joe, how you doing? Pretty good. It's actually snowing out here in New York, so I'm enjoying that from the inside. I'm just enjoying staying warm, drinking my tea and talking to you. I'm not a big fan of the cold, but, you know, it'll work out. I miss going outside for walks. That's the thing. It's just like I can't do that. And I don't think – I was just talking to my wife about this. I don't think we've been in lockdown in this kind of isolated weather because Mm -hmm. it started in March last year. We're recording at the beginning of February, and it's like – now it's like I don't really have a lot of choice of where to go and – I don't want to walk outside. <laughs> I feel like as a person who you live in Michigan, you picked a really interesting place to live for someone who doesn't like the cold. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's well, like we said before, with global warming, it's gotten better. <laughs> so yeah, global uh, warming. It's pretty bad, but it's not all bad. <laughs> but yeah, so I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. So I'm guessing like many people on your show, I'm a developer. I'm an iOS developer. I've been working at Twitter for about two and a half years, and I work on an interesting team there. It's a cross-functional team called Health Client, and health in this case means kind of broadly the health of the public conversation. So my team focuses on misinformation, disinformation, abuse, harassment, civic integrity, and account security. So basically anything that could lead to the public conversation getting more toxic or getting more difficult for people to actually follow and understand what's actually happening out there in the world. So I do write code, but a lot of my work over the last year or so has shifted towards higher level goals, helping translate our needs to users into tangible product experiences, making sure that whenever we build anything, any product, it's been thought through from all the potential angles of health. And lately, a lot of my focus has been trying to kind of imbue that knowledge to really take the things that I know and spread them outwards. So that way, when people have questions about how to build a healthy product, they don't necessarily have to turn to our team. They can actually think for themselves about how to make sure that Twitter itself is healthier based on the fact that the platform has a lot of global impact and is affecting people people's real lives day to day. It's not just things are happening on the internet anymore. Like it felt like it was 10 years ago. And uh, yeah, that's what I do now. And uh, it's pretty new to me. And even though I've been here two and a half years, it's very different than the rest of my career, I would say. So how long have you been working on the health team? About two years now, actually. So when I joined Twitter, there was no health client team. There was health in general, but there was no... Uh, team focused on building product-facing experiences. So during the election, we built like labels that help annotate misinformation on tweets, and we uh, built a feature called the Public Interest Interstitial earlier, which was meant for keeping tweets that are from high-profile users still on the platform, but providing context to users to make them understand that there may be legal or uh, rule-violating content, but it's still important for public figures to have a voice. And all of this actually goes back and forth, right? There's no moral right and wrong choice here. And we're kind of deciding, not as we go, we're working with legal and trust and safety and public policy to think through what are the potential ramifications of anything that we do. And yeah, so it's really interesting to work on a team that, We have set goals. We want to make discourse on the platform healthier, but it's not always as easy as measuring the way that you would measure 
ah, we have more users, we have more people sharing, we have more people tweeting or anything like that. So there's a lot of noise out there with regard to people's opinions and sort of backseat driving what Twitter should and should not do. What do you think is the biggest misunderstanding that folks have when they interject in that conversation? So I don't necessarily even think it's a misunderstanding. I think it's the the world is really complex, right? And people have their own ways that they view the world and are trying to take that viewpoint and articulate it through their belief about a product. And those viewpoints, those moralities, those beliefs, they're all actually correct. I think the complexity lies in the fact that they're all correct, but they can't all be correct at the same time. So I care about two things more than I care about most things on Twitter. I care about misinformation and abuse. So oftentimes we'll build a feature that aims to solve a problem around abuse, right? So if you're like an underrepresented person, you may get harassed on the platform. We want to give you the tools to protect yourself in that regard. But if someone, for example, a position in a person in a high position of power, if they use it, they can actually use that same tool to hide dissent and thus spread misinformation. So there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. And the way that we build and approach building products is by building lots of little tools that give people the power to leverage them when they're needed while staying accountable, for example, for public figures. And the real difficulty, or I would say the real quote-unquote misunderstanding, is that when we ship one of these tools, people who view the world differently than what we're trying to solve will oftentimes try and say, ah, well, you didn't consider this. And the truth is we did consider it. We just have a lot of conflicting, competing, and important interests that we have to keep in balance. So it's very hard to reflect one person's worldview or even many people's worldview through a service completely. Yeah, I don't envy your position. I can imagine how difficult it is when you have a lot of voices uh, suggesting things. So yeah, kudos to you for, for dealing with that and figuring that out. I think it's not even about envy. I actually really enjoy, it's kind of like a large philosophical challenge and working at Twitter has shaped my worldview a ton, right? Because I've never been exposed to all of these different worldviews and it's helped build a lot of empathy for what people need in their lives, what people want in their lives, uh, even what harm just having one philosophical belief about the world can have and Personally, I've grown an inordinate amount even in the last two years working on this team. And yeah, it's it's very different than the kind of development that I was doing in the past. And uh, by all means, envy me if you want. <laughs> hey, I want to let you know about one of uh, the projects I've been working on, Orchid Nest. Orchid Nest pulls from a whole variety of RSS feeds thanks to Dave Verwer's iOS developer directory. And uh, I've been working on that, doing some updates here and there, trying to get the content to work better. There's been a couple of issues with the site where I've had to SSH in and fix a few bugs, redeploy updates and things like that. And looking forward to like continuing working on it. And what's made it so great is that it's been hosted on Linode and it's been really easy to set up and get started. Uh, I'm only paying five bucks a month to run this site. And I've got to say, uh, working with Linode has been fantastic. Just being able to SSH in easily uh, do updates to the Swift backend, doing uh, checking out 
the Postgres database for any discrepancies in the data. Linode has been awesome. And it's really the ideal host for a developer who knows what they're doing and really wants the tools without having to pay the big bucks with some other services that are out there. Linode has servers everywhere around the world, including Toronto and Mumbai. And it's really simplified for the developer and a really great tool. I highly recommend you check Linode out if you want to get started. You can use the referral code and the link in the show notes and give it a try for like 90 days. See if you like it. I highly recommend checking Linode out. If you're also interested in dabbling in some server-side Swift and want something more robust than what you might get from other services, Linode is pretty cheap and easy to get started. So go to the link in the show notes below and use that referral code to let them know where you heard about Linode and get started on that server-side Swift project you want to do. And if you have any questions or any tips, feel free to let me know. I'd love to hear how you got started with Linode and how you're using it for your server-side Swift project. Again, go to the link in the show notes to give Linode a try today. So what were you doing before you were at Twitter? Yeah, so before Twitter, I was actually working at a lot of companies. I worked at five or six companies full-time and To be honest, I never lasted more than a year at any of them. And that led me down the path of consulting. And I decided when I was consulting that I only wanted to work with actually companies that I shared moral values with. And it was after working at a lot of startups. So in the nine years before Twitter, I worked at 10 companies and I never quite felt like I fit right in. It felt like whenever we were solving small problems, I wanted to be solving big problems. When we were solving big problems, it felt like the people who were in charge didn't know what big problems they wanted to solve. And things just kept going backwards and forwards and left and right and all over the place. And I never felt to use the power of the name of your show. I never felt too empowered. Um, <laughs> so this path down, uh, I guess this path down morality, I decided to work with companies that shared values and uh, look for teams that really work like that as well. So I worked with uh, the New York Public Library briefly. I worked with uh, an ed tech startup. I worked with a women's healthcare startup. And actually in that time, I realized I wanted to be working with good people on good things. And it's it's very, I'm very lucky to be able to say that I can do that. But I developed this expertise in working on design and product and even helping companies raise money. And I learned a ton about building products in different ways that wasn't just iOS development. And I doubled down on my iOS expertise to kind of get my foot in the door to do all those things. So my path to Twitter was one that was very winding. And it's not, you know, don't tell my manager, but of course I won't be at Twitter forever. (laughs) But I do think that everything that I've learned here has been really valuable in ways that I never would have been able to get anywhere else. So I'm super grateful that my story is one that kind of goes in a lot of different directions. And then that's the way that I, in general, in my life, learn and grow clarity. It's not about uh, becoming an expert in one subject matter. It's about really making a lot of connections between a lot of different things. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, like it's been said before, but like the T-shaped developer, like having an expertise in one area, but then having like a wide expertise as well uh, is super helpful in being able to make those connections and being able to see see the big picture, but also be like really good at one specific thing. So yeah, I, I totally agree with that. 
Yeah, the last couple of years, I've actually been thinking on the concept of eclecticism and the idea that it's similar to the T-shaped developer, but when you when you get really good at one thing and you get really good at a second thing, you actually start to see a whole bunch of connections and overlap between those two things. And so I like a lot of different topics. I like philosophy. I like psychology. I like behavioral economics. Um, one thing that I realized between a lot of these is that they're all about building systems. And so when I'm doing my development work, I also think about how technology integrates into society. It doesn't exist in isolation anymore. And so by understanding more about society, by understanding more about people, by understanding more about how just in general choices in this world are made, I'm actually able to be a better developer. It's the cross section between those two subject matters that has the most room for exploration more than getting really, really good at one technology or getting really, really good at one field in general. So it sounds like a lot of the work you're doing at Twitter involves kind of that the sort of like working with a lot of teams, especially when it comes to this health client. What what has been like your biggest challenge as far as working with all these teams? That's a good question. There's always going to be challenges and we're a relatively big company or it depends on how you look at it. We're much smaller than many companies in our field, but we're big relative to a lot of companies you know, like we're not an indie shop by any stretch of the imagination. So I think the biggest challenge that we have is figuring out how to communicate across a team of 60 or 70 iOS developers, and also how to communicate across many different teams that have many different expertises at the same time. So trying to make sure that everything that I say is translatable into, is translatable for people who do not necessarily speak the same language and may read different things into the words that I say. When you say language, are you talking like English, Spanish, Chinese, or are you talking developer, designer, manager, finance? What do do you mean by language exactly? Yeah, I would say more of the latter, but it's actually interesting that you bring up the former because there are, I actually meant the latter definitely because yes, designers and developers and managers, we all speak different languages in a way. We all work differently. We all have our own jargon. Exactly. And there's also what's in our field of view and what's in our peripheral vision. So for a manager, it may not necessarily be as in touch with the day to day. They may be looking at a high level. So when I'm talking to a manager, I want to communicate my needs and my goals in this high level language. That way they can understand why I'm doing the things that I'm doing, not just what I'm doing. And well, we also do have people from different parts of the world. We have you know, people who are working, whether it's in India, whether it's in London, whether it's in Singapore, I want to make sure that I understand their cultural norms, their cultural values. So that way, when I explain to them why I'm doing something, we all have a shared goal and we're all trying to get there quicker and easier together. But I need to know what matters to them. So that way we can go down that path together. I think the other part of communication that's really challenging is that things are always moving. Things are always in motion because the company isn't staying still. So from a development perspective, there's a lot to keep up with, with different teams who have kind of different needs, right? So I'm working on health client, but there's a team working on tweets. There's a team working on direct messages, a team working on search. We're oftentimes overlapping in what we're touching. And there are a lot of things that may move under my feet. So their code is changing that I'm dependent on. My code is changing that they're dependent on. And I want to make sure that I'm doing things thoughtfully and considerately. But when you think about 60 people working in a code base and we work in this like kind of mono repo setup, so we're always 
stepping on each other's toes. But that's probably, in terms of complexity, the best way that we can work. At least if you have any other ideas, by all means, I would love to hear them. But that's kind of what we settled on. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, though, because like if you're all isolated, you're going to end up with a big cluster when you all have to merge together and work together. So I understand where you're coming from totally. Yeah. So I think the best skill that I can think of is developing awareness and knowing the right people to talk to and the right questions to ask before you get started. I think a lot of times people get started and then they realize that they have roadblocks. And if you can develop the acumen to understand what are the expected roadblocks that I will see, you'll actually be able to move a lot faster because you get a lot of that done out of the way. I work through people is a way of putting it. I oftentimes do my information gathering up front and I get other people involved both for my benefit, but partially for their benefit, because then they're aware of the things that I'm changing. But really, it's a lot for my benefit is so that way I can understand all of the requirements, all the complexities, all the paths that these people have walked down before. And it's a skill that takes practice just like any other. But it took me working in a very large setup. So I had mentioned that I worked at a lot of at a lot of companies. What I failed to mention was that uh, they were all startups. They were all people, no larger than 25 people when I joined. And so a lot of these problems where you have a lot of people thinking about this and you can't stay in sync, is just not a thing to consider. So it's interesting you say you bring somebody else with you when you're learning something new or trying to get like debriefed on some specific technology or, or ask a question. Um, that That seems like a healthy redundancy in the sense that you have somebody else on your team who can like, digest and grok this information. Right. But there's some redundancies that teams have, um, especially in like large companies that just aren't necessary and just doubles the work that isn't really needed. How do you deal with those cases? Yeah. In some ways I would say I'd be lucky to have those problems of redundancies. There's a lot of people working on Twitter, but it's not necessarily as big as the global impact that we have. So historically we've just kind of been understaffed. And that's a thing that we're changing. We're trying to grow the company as well to match the challenges that we have ahead of us. But I think that the best way to deal with redundancy is actually documentation. So it's not so much about documenting just the what and the how. It's about documenting the why. The why is really important because I could write a whole essay about how something is important, but how we got there is just as important as well. In what way is that journey important or that story about why it became important? Important. (laughs) That's actually a really good question. So if you look at Twitter, Twitter is 14 or 15 years old at this point. And there is a saying that everything that we ship is an idea that we've already talked about or tried before. And sometimes ideas aren't right for the time in the world that they're in, right? Mm, We could have, yeah, right. We could have shipped this feature 10 years ago, but it wouldn't have made any sense. And so understanding why it didn't make sense is just as important as understanding what the feature is and what it'll do, what impact it will have. Maybe it's a feature that 10 years ago was a good idea. Think about all the harassment that happens on Twitter these days. We can't just ship features that make people happy without considering those ramifications. And so that knowledge about why is usually locked into a person or a group of decision makers. And when a new person joins Twitter, you know, that we're at like 5,000. So the 5,000 first person, they don't have all this canonical backstory of the last 15 years of Twitter to understand how we got to where we are today. And the how we got to where we are today is actually the real, the real question we're asking is why did we make the decisions that we made? 
Yeah, that's really interesting because I, I agree. I mean, that doesn't just go with like Twitter, but a lot of companies have like a history behind them that makes them, uh, how do I put it, like lean their decisions in certain directions based on based on that history. So it's interesting you say that. And then the thing about like how features or ideas are good for certain times is like totally apt because, you know, Twitter 15, 16 years ago was by, you know, mostly used in web browsers, right? Like it, was it wasn't a until text the, messaging service. There you go. Right. Yeah. SMS. So totally, which is like, you know, it's totally different now to where it's, we have these, super powerful phones that can record crazy video and you know we have uh 5g you know which you know say what you will about it you know it's a lot better like lte it's these speeds are pretty decent where you can like upload videos pretty quickly and so yeah give me my 5g vaccine please I was going to I was going to go there. I was going to be like, yeah, it's either the the 5G causes a virus or it barely works half the time. That's why I use an iPhone. I don't want viruses. <laughs> nice. Do you have 5G? I do, but it's actually it's terrible. Like it, this, it's basically That's what I've heard. It's like the towers suck. Yeah, my my speeds are worse than LTE for some reason where I am in New York. Yeah, and this is this is why I didn't get an iPhone 12. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, yeah, like there's a, it's interesting because I was thinking like stuff about we've, we've chatted uh, offline about like uh, Apple, how Apple makes a lot of its decisions based on legal. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, and so like behind the scenes, a lot of the decisions that they make is, is based on legal and like that because of either something that affected it in its past has made it like very prone to being being protected by by legal ramifications and things like that. I don't know if you know like the the story with Disney, but like uh, Walt Disney had come up with a character. I forgot what the name of the character was, but it ended up being like basically stolen. And he from from that point on, I think that like affected their decision making about characters mm. is like making sure that they have the legal right to use that character and properly, you know, use trademarks and, and such. And like he made sure when he ended up having to do Mickey, like to make sure that nobody could steal Mickey. And obviously we know how how uh, important that is to the company of Disney is having trademarks on their characters and things like that and how that's affected their history. So yeah, I totally get where you're coming from. I also think that that's a really good example of when decisions have outward effects. So copyright law in the U S has been moved for the last 75 years, pretty much by protecting the Walt Disney corporation and their characters. Right. Right. Exactly. I think that amongst other things. Yeah, totally. It's a really good example of what I was thinking of, which is, when I joined Twitter, it was really important for me to kind of be like an anthropologist and understand how the decisions that we made led to where we were today. And I think that's one of the reasons that I'm more effective as an engineer, but I'm also more effective as just a person working at Twitter who's putting his hands on a lot of different things is that I understand all of that backstory as to how and why we made those decisions. And I think it's just yeah. important to to really know that. Uh, in anything that you do, in any kind of complex system that you work in. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Do you want to get your app featured on the App Store? Apple really likes to feature apps that show off their latest technology on their platforms and OSs. So, for instance, using some of Apple's latest APIs like dark mode, augmented reality, widgets, 
or sign in with Apple will help you get you on their radar. Now, if you want to get more tips like these, as well as best practices and mobile industry highlights straight to your inbox, then you want to sign up for AppFigures weekly newsletter at appfigures.com slash newsletter. You can see the link in the show notes below. Also, AppFigures is the tool to get your audience to know about your app and be able to find it easily through the App Store. If you haven't used AppFigures, then I recommend heading to appfigures.com to try AppFigures for free. If you like it, both new and existing users can use our special code MPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. Check our links in the show notes below for more details. And thank you, AppFigures, for sponsoring our show. So I want to get into some coding stuff. Yeah. Because one of the big things I've I've talked with a lot of guests is how there's a relationship between how teams are structured and how architecture is done. Because like you said, you have a mono repo, but in some cases you must have some sort of way your code is organized so that teams can work independently in some capacity. Is there that relationship uh, when it comes to teams and architecture at Twitter? Uh not so much. In a lot of ways, we're pretty straightforward. So I know a lot of my peer companies, Googles and Facebooks, they have really interesting solutions to manage all of the people that they're dealing with and all of the code that they're dealing with. And I'm just going to stick to the iOS side, though the server aspect where there's even more developers at Twitter is also, yeah, that- yeah I mean, we're talking like, I guess, 20 times more people working on the back end, if not more than we have on the client. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. for the client, we have a pretty straightforward architecture. It's something resembling MVVM or MVC, kind of situationally dependent. A lot of our code is historically Objective-C, and we're moving to Swift. And doing that Swift migration means breaking a lot of things down into more modules to to kind of avoid build complexity and build time explosion, which is a problem that we've suffered in the past. We don't invest in the way that like Google has, uh, I believe it's Basil and uh, or and like other companies use Buck as their build tools. We just use Xcode build out the box. We try to err on the side of simplicity, similar to the MVC or MVVM idea. And teams have their own autonomy on the decisions that they want to make. But because so much of Twitter is oriented around the tweet, you have a tweets team that is driving some choices and they're thoughtful and considerate of the needs that people have, of course. And you have an infra team that is trying to look out for the best of how everyone is trying to do their work as a cohesive unit. And it can get a little messy on the kind of leaf nodes where people are individually uh, trying to use their own styles. But whether you have a centralized decision-making process or decentralized autonomy, you're kind of going to run into problems. That makes a lot of sense. What do you do for dealing with dependencies and how many dependencies, outside dependencies, do you have? Uh, we try and use almost none, right? So okay, we, that makes total sense. We, yeah, we integrate we integrate one password, for example. We still have that framework, I know, but we just use regular frameworks, and we try not to. I'm actually not 100 percent sure if this is an IP related thing as well, right? Because Twitter IP is unique, and so we probably want everything internally to be legally on the safe side. So I know that whenever mm-hmm. we do think about integrating an external dependency, it has to go through legal clearance, which is not a thing that like in my personal projects I have to do. I'm just like, ah, yes, 
add this cocoa pod, add the Swift package, and I don't think twice about it aside from double checking the code to make sure it's something that I think is good. But yeah, right, it's a little right. different story for Twitter. How many folks are on the iOS development team? It's hard to say. I think it's about 70 right now, but people leave, people join, and we're trying to grow. But so I don't have an exact number for you, but it's less than 100 and more than 50. Would it? Is there anything particular about iOS development that has made the scaling or uh, the communication more or less difficult? Hmm. Well, I think one thing is that we try and make all of our solutions server driven. So everything is conceptually, like almost everything in the app is conceptually a timeline. And those timelines are broken down into components. And those components are the things that you know. So whether it's like buttons on the screen or whether it's the tweet text or content, we're basically doing a translation layer where we're just a fancy JSON printing service as an iOS app. And Mm. that makes things more complex in terms of the initial lift. So if we want to build something, we have to go through this process of making sure that it's compatible, long-lasting, and a good design. But Yeah, I was thinking about that, too, because you've got Android, you've got web, you've got, mm-hmm. I don't know what else, BlackBerry. No, no. <laughs> sorry, not that. But Peace Vita. I don't think so. I know we had an Apple TV app <laughs> at one point, but I don't think so. Yeah, so that puts a little more work up front, and that's one of the reasons that things sometimes take a little longer to build. But... At the same time, now we have actually a whole bunch of reusable components. And if you think about reusable components, it's good for both developers, but it's good for designers, it's good for product people. They know what is available to them. And so oftentimes we can mix and match all these components without doing any client work whatsoever. So in the long term, making this stuff server-driven is actually really powerful. So powerful in the sense that you build once, I guess, on the server, and then it's easy to deploy on the client, so to speak? Yeah, you actually build one client integration, right? So let's just say I'm building a feature. I build the reusable iOS version, build the reusable Android version, build the reusable mobile web version or web version. And then if they decide we want a product experience where we move this over here and we change this over here and we update this over there, client engineers don't have to do any work, right? We've built it in a way that I know that write once run anywhere, it definitely has its downsides and it has its historical meaning, but it's actually not too bad in the sense that the problem with write once run anywhere is that there's a whole set of needs that different users have. But as a platform, as Twitter, we're going for one consistent experience. So that means that with one server change, we can make a deploy that has a unified, consistent experience across platforms if we did our jobs correctly. Yeah. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I could see how that would make it a lot easier. What is the server written in, if you mind uh, divulging? Yeah, it's public knowledge. It's actually Scala. And Twitter was a really early contributor to Scala and shaped the language because if uh, people may remember, we used to be a Ruby on Rails shop. And the very famous fail whale was, not to misuse this quote, but couldn't handle our scale. And... over the years, we needed a robust solution, so the JVM was a natural place to choose that, uh, or a natural choice for the kind of high-volume parallel computing that we needed. And we benefited from the Scala language having a lot of really good primitives and built-in. Uh, we actually ended up, I believe, please don't quote me on this, uh, 
the concept of promises in Scala is through Twitter's contribution. And I believe that may actually be the concept of promises in general to try and create a parallel way to express, you know, asynchronous data that needs to respond in the future. And mm-hmm. it was an easy investment to say, or an easier investment to say, let's build on top of this existing idea rather than build our own thing here, or where a lot of other solutions that already existed just didn't work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So have you done a lot of work with promises and futures in Swift at all? Or uh, have you looked at any of the new new Swift 5 async await stuff? I've just been peering into the conversation on the async await. My view with Swift evolution is I only get involved when I have some sort of like disagreement, right? Or 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 I really want to express positively like, oh, I really agree with this. Mm-hmm. So in general, I'm just kind of a lurker and occasional commenter. But yeah. when it comes to promises and and uh, any of the ASIC stuff in general, I've been using Combine for about a year, which is where promises are currently uh, implemented in Swift. And it's good. <laughs> I like it. I think Combine is... Yeah. I, I have some hesitations with Combine, and it's not Combine's fault. It's the same hesitations I have with a lot of reactive frameworks, which is the first 80% is really, really powerful and useful. And then... Uh, at least for me, reorienting my thinking for the last 20% of how to think reactively, it's really yeah. tough, right? Where you have to re-envision a solution of how to make something that makes a lot of sense imperatively into a reactive construct. And oftentimes it involves one extra transformation. It could be a flat map, it could be a scan, it could be something that at least to me isn't naturally intuitive. And I say at least to me because intuition is obviously based on uh, knowledge. It's it may be there may be some reactive guru out there thinking like I don't understand how a for loop <laughs> works, right? And I will yeah. just be like, well, this is for me. So yeah. <laughs> so before we close out, I wanted to ask you what are some suggestions you have for the listeners about improving their code so that way teams can just work to be, together a lot easier and, and get along a lot better. That's a really good question. I actually think that. I approach this everything in life, but people first is the most important thing. So people are complex, right? And we talked a lot about complexity earlier, but people are complex in a different way. And I think that the key is to be consistent, adaptable, and flexible. Ultimately, what I think is that code isn't going to solve your problems as much as people are going to solve your problems. And the code is a reflection of your team's dynamics, uh, similar to the idea of Conway's law, where code is a reflection of the organization. Code is also a reflection of the team dynamics that you have. So yeah, approaching everything from a people first kind of perspective. And when you're writing code, just keep things simple, write functions, make code easy to be deleted, not too coupled, and always lean towards composition. That'll make the code smooth. And then it'll leave it adaptable and flexible. And then your team will also be adaptable and flexible as long as you consider all of their needs as individuals and as people and as parts of, you know, the bigger company as well. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. I think that that consistency, adaptability and flexibility is is super helpful. And just thinking about uh, it's hard for us to get outside of our head and see how complex things are outside there and what other needs are there are when it comes to this stuff. It's also one of those things that it's really easy to put in a sentence, but it takes practice and living it to really understand what those words mean. And so 
Uh, I've definitely had at different times in my life, I'm sure I've heard this advice and I thought, ah, I know better, right? But uh, the longer that I stay- You have to experience it almost. Exactly. The longer I stay open-minded to this kind of thing, the more those words have meaning behind them. And that's why I don't necessarily expect that advice to resonate with everyone at every point in their life right now. But I would say, keep thinking about how to be consistent, adaptable, and flexible. Thank you so much, Joe, for coming on our show. Where can people find you online? Sure. Um, well, the first place you can find me is Twitter. <laughs> My username is Merge Sort, uh, like the algorithm. And uh, I'm not sure if I was lucky enough or nerdy enough to snag that a while ago. And um, yeah, from there, there's a whole bunch of, I guess there's links to my website. That's where I do most of my writing. And then, you know, the usual, the GitHubs, the, actually, I don't have any other social media. So yeah, you can just find me on Twitter, my website and GitHub. Cool. And we'll have links in the show notes to that. Thank you again. Cool. Thank you so much for having me. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. Uh, and my company is Bright Digit. If you have any questions for me, uh, feel free to send me a DM on Twitter. I would appreciate you share this episode with others as well and put out a review. Always looking for new reviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you are listening. Thank you again for joining us for this episode, and I look forward to talking to you again. Bye.